It is good to be back again. Uh, make a, I'll make a few comments before we I could start my sermon. Last weekend, last Sunday, I myself with um, a few of our uh, seven of our church were actually in Haiti, attended a worship service there. It was fun. It was good. But we won't do any reporting today. We got back home Friday morning at 2 a.m. or so, and it was and so we had yesterday and Friday to kind of get reoriented a little bit. So we will not do reporting today, but as many of our team as Ken will next Sunday be here to share something. We'll also have a little bit of a video as well, so please come out next Sunday. You don't want to miss this. And I think most of us will be able to be here. One gentleman said he couldn't make it next Sunday, but most of us will be here next Sunday. Another piece of announcement that should have been in the bulletin, uh, I don't know why it didn't get in there, but it's maybe my fault. Uh, next Saturday at 3 o'clock, if you're a Sunday school teacher, please be here. Next Saturday, 3 o'clock, Sunday school teachers training. So for all those who are, who are Sunday school teachers, please come and uh, take part in this Sunday school training. Okay. Today is November the 11th. And this year it falls on a Sunday. And I think most of us, well, all of us who go to school or have gone to school here know what that day stands for. November 11th is the day when the guns fell silent in 1918 after a horrendous dragged um, war that had dragged on for four long years. Um, there was um, there was no way of knowing when they started that struggle how catastrophic, how how tragic, and how um, just all around awful that struggle would be. Um, the world had gotten itself into a, to a mess, and they decided, you know what, we're going to settle this, and we're going to do it with guns and bombs. And so World War I in 1914 erupted on the world stage, and for four long years, nations sacrificed men and women, mostly men back in those days, but men and women both died on both sides of the struggle. Catastrophic. But they called it the war to end all wars. This is going to be the final big war, and from here on in, we're going to not fight anymore. I remember many years ago seeing a cartoon. I love cartoons. Cartoons speak loudly. There's this cartoon, um, there's a fight going on, and one guy's looking over the fence there, the neighbor, and there's this one guy on the other, and this guy's on the ground, he's just pummeling with his fist. He says, I'm fighting to end the fights. We're going to... How do you... How do you communicate that? I've sometimes made this comment. Bullets are just messages. That's all they are. Bombs are messages. Sending a message, I want you to, I want to end your life. I want to shut you up. And then 1918, World War I, World War I ended and they thought it was the war to end all wars. Little did they know that in 21 years from that time, the world would again be enmeshed in a catastrophic struggle for power and domination. They called it World War II. And it ended, as wars eventually do, with a new technology called atomic bombs. And uh, a lot of people died from that. And they had invented a new way of killing, a new way of destruction. And now, in our time, that's now 70 plus years later, we have now ever-increasing ways of killing each other off. People we don't like, we can kill them. Or they can kill us. And people believe in that stuff. And it's not pretty. I just read um, 
in my preparation for my sermon, I came across an article from some years ago that mentioned that in 3,400 years of recorded history, there have been only 268 years where there was peace around the world as far as they know. That's about 8% of human history with peace. Other than that, we've always been busy killing each other in some way, shape, or form. Not even animals do that. It'd be comforting to know if we could look ahead into the future and see a day when on this planet everybody would just love everybody, we would all get along. That would be a dream come true for many people. But that's not the case. In fact, it's actually getting worse. And as more and more people are jockeying for position, for power and control and trying to control more, it's only increasing. Fifteen years ago, one article I read was that 15 years ago, there were 30 wars in progress simultaneously on the globe. Even today, Syria, there's conflict. In Iraq, there's conflict. In the Middle East, Gaza and Israel, there's conflict. In Africa, numerous nations in Africa have conflict. And then there's a lot of localized stuff like Mexico, the drug cartels. Still going on. And then internal disruption in Venezuela right now. You know, the people caravans that we've been talking, have been hearing on the news. So, by the way, someone said that in Mexico, the drug war has now claimed what they officially have recorded, documented, in its 12 years of ongoing stuff. 200,000 lives have been taken in the Mexican drug war. And 35,000 have gone missing. They just don't know where they are. And we kind of get used to it. You know, it's not our backyard. It's not our neighborhood. And so we kind of get desensitized a little bit. Then we have the more local stuff, like in California, the nightclub shooting that happened a few days ago. You probably heard about that one. It's not new. The Apostle John was a pastor in his time over a number of churches in Asia. And he was suffering for his faith, and wars were happening in his day. He was serving time as a servant of Jesus on the island of Patmos because of his faith. The government was hard and brutal and cruel and ruthless against Christians. Many were killed for their faith. There he had this vision. And that's what we'll talk about today. Carry on with our sermon series on Revelation. The world has never been at peace, really, except for a few brief years. And it's happening today, and it happened in John's day. And as we're going through the book of Revelation, one of the beautiful things about the book is it's like watching a movie to which you know the ending. I don't know if you like to watch movies where you know what's going to, how it's going to turn out. Um, I'm not a good movie watcher. I don't, I don't have good choice. I just, I just don't know much about movies, but I like it when I kind of can predict, you know, this is how it's going to turn out. And the book of Revelation is a story. We know how it turns out. And it, it encompasses all of the church age. Today we're coming to a point in the book of Revelation where John's vision, where John in his vision is given a part of the story how the world systems crash. It's not about prosperity and, and success and peace. It's the other way around. And we see how carefully planned systems, structures, all come crashing down. It's unsustainable. They all just, just disintegrate. Someone has said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over again, hoping for different results. Isn't that the world? Isn't that what's going on in our world? We try the same thing over and over again with the same results as cultures. We do that. They rise and fall for the same reasons. 
In the Bible, there's a verse which I would like to, um, to look at. It's Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11. Proverbs 26, 11. On the PowerPoint, it should show up there. It says, As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. This is a bit of time before lunch yet, so by, the, by lunchtime you may not feel this as much. Right now you wouldn't want to eat lunch. If you've ever watched this, a dog going after his vomit, it's, it's, it's revolting, it's disgusting. Whatever you're eating, you can't eat right then. But that's how the writer of Proverbs describes the foolishness of this world. That's how ugly and disgusting and gross it is. People doing the same thing over again with the same results. When will we learn? Well, I have news for you. The world will never learn. They just get better at doing bad things. It's getting worse. Let's read this morning out of Revelation chapter 17. Let's read the whole chapter, in fact. Let's begin Revelation chapter 17, beginning verse 1. Let's read through all of chapter 17. It says here this way. This is John's vision now re- uh, continuing on. And, and in fact, this vision now gets uh, some explanations. It's not just, uh, not just symbolic. It is symbolic, but what do the symbols mean? And John has given some clear, some clear explanations. So beginning verse one, it says, one of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her, and the people who belong to this world have made have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. Verse 3. So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns, and blasphemous, blasphemies against God were written all over it. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand she held a gold goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in amazement. Why are you so amazed, the angel asked. I will tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns on which she sits. The beast you saw once was once alive but is not now, and yet will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. And the people who belong to this world, whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made, will be amazed at the reappearance of the beast who had died. This calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. They also represent seven kings. Five kings have already fallen. The sixth now reigns, and the seventh is yet to come, but his reign will be brief. The scarlet beast that was but is no longer is the eighth king. He is like the other seven, and he too is headed for destruction. The ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They'll be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. They will agree to give him their power and authority. Together they will go to war against the lamb. But the lamb will defeat them because he is lord of all lords and king of all kings. And his, and his called and chosen faithful ones will be with him. Then the angel said to me, The waters where the prostitute is ruling represent masses of people of every nation and language. The scarlet beast and his ten horns all hate the prostitute. They will strip her naked, eat her flesh, and burn her remains with fire. For God has put a plan into their minds, a plan they will carry out that will carry out his purposes. They will agree to give their authority to the scarlet beast. And so the words of God will be fulfilled. And this woman you saw in your vision represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. What do you do with a passage like this? 
it is so incredibly loaded. John's given this vision, but then thankfully he's also given an explanation what this means. Here John receives a, a vision of world systems, a vision of how evil things would get and how evil things would become, how corrupt and immoral things would get. And even though we have only a limited insight and limited understanding what or who exactly the seven heads are or who the ten horns are, we do have a very clear description of their future. And the heads and horns represent world authorities, world powers, that much we know. And there are people, there are scholars who have, who have figured this out exactly. They have figured that this horn means this and, and this means that and, and so on and so on. And that's not my focus or my, my aim when I read Revelation. I don't know those things, and it would be one thing if, they, if all the scholars agree, but they're so different in their interpretations. But what, what is noteworthy is there's unity in evil. They unite. They stand as one. Have the same purpose, the same goal and destiny in mind. We want to control, we want to dominate. God is off the throne. We are, we are in charge, we are in power. And God has orchestrated it this way. And I find this amazing. God has made the world so that when evil is committed, it carries within itself the seeds of destruction. Evil cannot survive. Evil never does survive. It always meets an end. It looks like it does for a while. But sooner or later, it reaps a harvest of death. Every time. No matter what structure the governments and the politicians of the world come up with, it never lasts. And it very clearly says, immorality is in. Does that somehow ring true in our time? Again, I'm not saying at what point in time this part, or this part of it comes into reality. But what we do know is the world is not getting better. Immorality, selfishness, and greed is increasing every day. And this is far-reaching and has great influence. People lose their moral compass. And if you read history, I love history. If you read history, the Roman history, especially about Rome, it's interesting how they, what their demise looked like. It's a very fascinating story. They did not collapse because outside forces became so strong. They were there and there were strong outside forces. But the number one reason why they collapsed was an inward cause. If our culture, our society will collapse, which it will one day, it will not be so much so likely because of outside forces coming in. It's more an inward decay. It eats itself up from the inside. And all this about the image of the beast, the color of the beast, the heads and the horns, all of this refers to alliances and systems and structures that they have put together. But what I'm wondering about, is there anything more revolting, more disgusting, more just pushback than pride in the eyes of God? God doesn't have it. God has no pride. He's a humble He's a glorious, majestic, humble being. We can never fully understand or grasp him. But pride just reeks of death. And that's what this system is full of. We must remember the story of Adam and Eve, how Satan tempted them. And how he got them off track. And ever since then, the world has been in that trail. When God created human beings... The greatest gift, physical gift that he gave human beings was the physical intimacy, the ability to raise families. And that the world has turned into an idol for immorality. And Paul talks about that in Romans 1. Revelation, John the Apostle writes about it in this chapter that we just read. 
Repeatedly in history, we find how God judged people for their idolatry and immoral living. And Jesus drew attention to it, what God wants people to do. Paul talks about it in Romans 1, as I just mentioned. But in this chapter, we see the world doesn't care. The world does not care. It is almost as if the world has reached a point in this vision where, I know it's wrong, I know what God says, but I like it. I'll do it anyway. I think that is scary. It should, it should cause fear in our hearts to realize when people deliberately, intentionally, willfully, purposefully flout the commands of God, I don't care. I'll do it anyway. We've lost our fear of God as a nation. Sin, by definition, is self-destructive, like I said before. It's like a cancer. It eats and devours the one in whom it resides. What does God have to say to all this? Let's read on verse chapter 18. Let's begin chapter 18, verse 1. It says this, After all this, I saw another angel come down from heaven with great authority, and the earth grew bright with his splendor. He gave a mighty shout, Babylon has fallen, the great city has fallen. She has become a home of demons. She is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture, and every foul and dreadful animal. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine of her passionate immorality. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her. Because of her desires for extravagant luxury, the merchants of the world have grown rich. Then I heard another voice calling from heaven. Come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins or you'll be punished with her. For her sins are piled as high as heaven. And God remembers her evil deeds. Do to her as she's done to others. Double her penalty for all her evil deeds. She brewed a cup of terror for others, so brewed twice as much for her. She glorified herself and lived in luxury, so match it now with torment and sorrow. She boasted in her heart, I'm a queen on my throne. I am no helpless widow. I have no reason to mourn. Therefore, these plagues will overtake her in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be completely consumed by fire, for the Lord God who judges her is mighty. The kings of the world who committed adultery with her and enjoyed her great luxury will mourn for her as they see the smoke rising from her charred remains. They will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment. They will cry out, how terrible, how terrible for you, O Babylon, you great city. In a single moment, God's judgment came on you. The merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her. There is no one left to buy their goods. She bought great quantities of gold, silver, jewels and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet cloth, things made of fragrant fine wood, ivory goods and objects made of expensive wood and bronze, iron and marble. She also bought cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots and bodies, that is human slaves. The fancy things you love so much are gone, they cry. All your luxuries and splendor are gone forever, never to be yours again. The merchants who became wealthy by selling her these things will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment. They will weep and cry out, How terrible, how terrible for that great city. She was clothed in finest purple and scarlet linens, decked out with gold and precious stones and pearls. In a single moment, all the wealth of the city is gone, and all the captains of the merchant ships and their passengers and sailors and crews will stand at a distance. They'll cry out as they watch the smoke ascend, and they will say, Where is there another city as great as this? And they will weep and throw dust on their heads to show their grief. And they will cry out, how terrible, how terrible for that great city. The ship owners became wealthy by transporting her great wealth on the seas. In a single moment, it is all gone. Rejoice over her fate, O heaven and people of God, and apostles and prophets, for at last God has judged her for your sakes. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a huge millstone. He threw it into the ocean and shouted, just like this, the great city Babylon will be thrown down with violence and never be found again. The sound of harps, singers, flutes, and trumpets will never be heard in you again. No craftsmen, no trades will ever be found in you again. The sound 
the sound of the mill will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The happy voices of brides and grooms will never be heard in you again. For your merchants were the greatest in the world, and you deceived the, the nations with your sorceries. In your streets flowed the blood of the prophets and the God's holy people and the blood of people slaughtered all over the world. God's going to derail the world infrastructures and the economies and the systems and the, everything the world has put together. God's going to derail it because it's not honoring to Him. It's not glorifying Him. It stands for pride, for self. And he's going to derail it. Sometimes I think we as governments, when we are involved in some way, shape, or form, we, we do local voting, and I'm not saying it's wrong or anything like that, but we build on this stuff. We trust in this stuff. And our hope is Jesus. It's not this stuff. The end is predicted. It will come. You know, when, when, when stuff like this happens, it's just mind-boggling how it works. A story that I was thinking about when I was getting ready for this was the story of the king of Egypt, King Pharaoh, how he just oppressed the slaves, the Hebrew slaves. They were just oppressed so much. And then finally God calls Moses, and Moses then goes to Pharaoh. And, and after ten plagues of, of disaster come on Egypt, Pharaoh finally lets the, the people go, but then he changes his heart and mind because he's a hard-hearted man, and God has designed his destruction already from, from the start. And Pharaoh says, why did I let them go? i got to get my slaves back. And he takes his chariots and chases after them. And you know the story. They go into the... They're scared, and Moses says, don't worry, God's going to take care of you, and, and they go into the Red Sea, the sea parts, and they're going through. As they're walking out the other side, Pharaoh and his army charge in from the other side. They're going to chase after them on the seabed, uh, the walls of water on both sides, and they're going to chase after them. What I like about the story is how God deals with it. You know the story. The chariots, the military machine of Egypt comes apart. It says in the King James Version, and God made the chariot wheels come off, and they couldn't drive the chariots. You think those chariots were not inspected very well before they took off? You think those chariots needed some maintenance before they took off? No. They were perfectly fine. In fact, I think they were the best chariots that anybody could, could want. They were top-notch military vehicles in their day, and God just made the wheels come off. You know what? That's going to happen in this world too. God's going to make the wheels come off. And when God decides, okay, this is enough, we're going to make this economy collapse, there's nothing we can do about that. Can you imagine the terror, the fright, the horror of these Egyptian soldiers at Pharaoh's command, charging in the walls of water on either side, charging after those fleeing Israelites, and all of a sudden the wheels are coming off, can't drive anymore. Can you imagine the terror and the fright? I think that will repeat, I know it repeats itself from time to time. And when God is going to shake the world economies again, which it'll make the stuff that we experience today look like child's play. And when I look at the world the way it's being set up, somebody put it very well. He said, we're not becoming a better world. We're just setting ourselves for, setting ourselves up for a harder crash. That's what we're doing. Because nothing has ever lasted. We shouldn't kid ourselves. Oh, this time it will. This will now last. Every time people put their trust in something else than God, something goes wrong. We're building, as human beings, a trap for ourselves that will bring our destruction in humanity. And then God does something strange here in Revelation chapter 18. He tells people to rejoice. Yes! It's happening. Somebody once put it this way. Why is it 
that in some countries where the people are being killed for their faith, where there's imprisonment, there's torture, there's killing going on because people are Christians, when you talk about, they're rejoicing, they're smiling, because yes, our redemption is drawing near, we're, we're going to go home to be with Jesus. But here in the West, we're, we're fearful, we bite our nails, pull our hair, and those of us that have some. Why is that? Is it perhaps because we have different sets of values I'm afraid sometimes that is so. God tells his people, rejoice and give back to this Babylon twice what she did to you. There will come a day of rejoicing when evil will finally end for good. The oppression of God's people continues for now. It has for 2,000 years. But with God, that's only like a, a day or so. Let's read chapter 19 as well. He says, after this, after this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He's punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He's avenged the murder of his servants. And again their voices rang out, Praise the Lord, the smoke of that city ascends forever and ever. And the 24 elders and four living beings fell down and worshiped God who was sitting on the throne. They cried out, Amen, praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. Then heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of a loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the mighty, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his, and his bride has prepared herself. That means the church. Verse 8, she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words, are true words that come from God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said, no, don't, don't worship me, I'm a servant of God, just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God, for the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself, and he wore a robe dipped in blood. And his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God and the Almighty of God the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come and gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, strong warriors, of horses and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fire lake of burning sulfur. It ends with a battle. And there are winners and losers. What is interesting is the world has existed for so many years and so much time has already passed and humanity still has not learned. 
You can't get rid of God. It doesn't work. He always comes back, and he always wins. And here they're going to try one final time, one gigantic movement. We're going to get rid of him once and for all. What does God say? Come, let's have a banquet. We're going to feed you to the animals. There's going to be a massive destruction. All the world structures and systems, whatever else the world has, is going to be like nothing. And I like the way he describes Jesus. He describes him as riding on a horse. A horse is an animal of, of control. Of, of, uh, it's a war animal. And will Jesus actually ride a horse? We don't know because he was using word pictures or symbols in that day to illustrate a truth. But what it does illustrate is victory, dominance, and Jesus will overtake. Everyone will have to surrender. And evil will be done away with once and for all. What the sad part is, there will be many, many, many people who will go with Satan into eternal damnation. That's what it tells us. Even Jesus in the gospel says, many will seek to enter, will not be able to. Because they want it both ways. God will execute a final judgment on sin. And Jesus himself will be the judge. It's not going to be pretty. Eyes like fire. Crowns on his head. Robe dipped in blood. On a horse. He's not coming to be a baby this time. He's not coming to wash feet this time. He's coming to rule. He's going to take over. He makes war. He's a king. He protects what's his. He takes back what's his. And, and, and I want to be careful, but we talk about Jesus and God as loving and gentle and merciful and gracious and, and kind. And that's all true. That's all true. He is all those things. But let's not forget, people, God is also God of wrath and justice. Let's keep this in context. He will do away with all evil. But those of us who are who have our names written in the book of life will enjoy eternal heaven with him. God and Satan have no truce, no ceasefire. There's no giving in. They too do not get along. Satan is a creature of pride and deceit and destruction and death, and God will do away with him once and for all. This battle is described in such graphic detail we can't even imagine it. And it may be symbolic in some way, but what is clear is evil will fail. Evil will be done away with. Satan will rise up one final time to do battle against God and he will lose. God will win. And the world will pay the price of the fight. In the meantime, this world is getting from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. And we don't have to look far, don't have to read many newspapers to see that's true. And God will come to judge. The tables will turn. And God's people will rejoice. So let's put our hope in Jesus. Satan is a defeated foe. He's still, he's still active, he's still busy, he's still raging and roaring like a lion, as Peter says, but he's already lost the fight. So we can, we, can cho- we can choose which side we're on. We're offered the gift of life. And I want to encourage you to not waste this. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, Everyone who comes to me, I will in no, wise, no way cast out. We want to be on his side. 
Jesus came to this world once as a baby to suffer and die for our sins. He was nailed to a cross. He was buried in a tomb. He rose on the third day. And he's offering salvation to everyone who calls on his name. Our sins are paid for. We do not have to pay the debt. Or we can say it's not for me. I'll put self on the throne. I want to do what I want to do. I'll live life my way. And we can join the beast. We do not have to suffer the judgment of condemnation that will come in this world. We can be part of that throng shouting God's praises and God's glory in heaven for eternity. That is my prayer, my desire for us as people in our community. Where do we want to end up? Which direction do we want to go? Revelation is a hard book. That's why so many pastors don't like preaching on it. I don't like it either. Because so much of it I don't understand. It's a scary book. But it's a good book. And God tells us what He's going to do to this world. It's far better. We don't make our citizenship here. We make it in heaven. Because this world will go down. May God give us grace and strength and courage and love as we continue serving Him forever, however long He has us in this world. And some of us may not live to see a day when He will return. Maybe all of us will, be, will pass on through natural death. Maybe we will. Some of us may, may be killed for our faith, whatever the cause may be. But let's finish our race well. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your word, for the book of Revelation. It is very relevant today to our time. In the book of Revelation, you talk about world systems, governments, powers, and dominions that all align together to push out good, to push out you. May we be faithful, Lord, and not allow ourselves to be drawn into that stream. And Lord, where we have, may we repent as is described in Revelation 1 to 3. May we come back to you. And those of us perhaps who have never known you, and who have never experienced grace, who have never experienced forgiveness, may we for the first time realize that we're doomed outside of you. You say that no one comes to the Father except through you. May we come to you, Lord Jesus, in repentance and humility, giving ourselves, walking with you because you will come back to rule. You will overtake this world. All the systems this world has constructed will all be done away with. May we be found faithful to you and join that heavenly throng. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.